Well, welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your host, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story, joining you on what is almost the end of October. It is October 30th, 2020. We are rounding the corner. We are getting close. The end of the end of the year that will never end is actually starting to, to have a light at the end of the tunnel. We can only hope it's not a train. Uh, but welcome once again. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is an actual recording. This is not a recording of me talking about recordings and interviews. Uh, we are actually joining you, Rich and I, together. It's been a couple weeks now, Rich. Somewhere, yeah, because I think it's been two weeks since we actually recorded. Here lately, we've just been all over the place. We record <laughs> one night, and it's not loaded until two or three days later. So, you know, between your traveling and the conference and um, an unscheduled, basically an unscheduled show Monday <laughs> because of that, I mean, yeah, we've it's just been kind of all over the place. And I'd like to add, our radio program or podcast is hosted at slave to the com. so anytime you want to go find previous episodes you can go to our website at slave to the com, and that's basically our home for everything uh, i've had a few comments people have trouble either downloading some of the podcast listening apps or you know they're they're listening through different mediums other than their phone, but if for whatever reason you need to just go straight to the website and find the episodes, they are all posted there. You don't have to download Podbean if you don't if you don't want to, mm-hmm. or for whatever reason that like I said, if you're having issues, you can go to slave to the king dot com. And everything we've ever recorded is on there on top of the fact that Chris posted a very, very, very <laughs> detailed book review of a migraine this week called from a book called White Fragility. <laughs> and he, he I just want to say, brother, you did an absolutely outstanding job on the book review. And thank you for <laughs> the self-torture you endured. Through reading that book, the the aspects you pointed out gave me a migraine just having to read about what was said in that book. But you did a really good job breaking it down and explaining and pointing out the fact that the book was not a debate. The book was not a balanced presentation, pros and cons. It was just flat-out, full-on, blown propaganda for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. for the fact that basically if you're white you're racist if you deny it you're a racist if you say you're racist you're a racist and that's basically how i've described it to a couple other people and they just kind of roll their eyes and shake their head other than the fact that now if you're a black and you support conservatives you're a racist yeah yeah um did you know that Virgil and Daryl over at Just Thinking, two black men, are white nationalists? Yeah, I saw that. I haven't quite figured out how that... <laughs> I don't know how that works either. <laughs> um, no, that that book was brutal. Oh, but... 
Go ahead. But to be fair, if to, to be fair, if I remember you telling me correctly, this book was actually written by a white woman. Yes. Me. Yes. Robin D'Angelo is a white woman. And she says throughout the book, she describes herself as being a racist because she has to, according to her presupposition, which is that racism is not an act. It's a system. And if you're born into this system and you're privileged by this system, you are a racist by nature because, well you're white and you benefit from this system and you won't renounce it. So it's, it is an exercise in self induced migraines. If you actually read this book with any, and by the way, that's not our show topic tonight. So take a deep breath. Um, it, it is a, it is a migraine inducing text because there's no critical thinking allowed. And that's what I, I put into this review. There, there are several areas that I, instead of kind of trying to take it chapter by chapter and tell you what the book was about per se, I actually um, addressed what I saw were serious problems in terms of basically forcing you to accept a certain perspective. You weren't allowed to think. You weren't allowed to question. You were you were guided down this path, and you were hemmed in on every side. And by the time you get to the end, it's kind of like Chinese water torture. You either submit or you're toast. Um, so, so go ahead. So, so so the listeners can find it, and if they would be so kind to go read it and share it. What is the name of the article? It is uh, the title of the article is actually Book Review White uh, White Fragility. And we'll put that into the show links. And just to kind of give you a primer, the areas that I addressed about the book is, one, she has biased presuppositions. She actually starts with a biased premise, and she admits that. It has a very reductionistic history. It talks about uh, the, the so-called, so-called history of racism in America. And it's it, everything is reduced down to, it's all underlying racism. That's, that's the the tip off it's everything is motivated by racism everything's a power uh, struggle um she she only cites people that's this is the other problem is she only cites pro critical race theory pro systematic uh, systemic racism sources she does not in any way shape or form interact with competing viewpoints a- anything that's a competing viewpoint is de facto white fragility. So she will not interact with them. Um, she has a, a terrible a lack of context and she is very emotionally manipulative throughout the course of the book. Uh, she'll give you uh, studies and, and uh, criminal background stuff or you know anecdotes and so much of it is lacking in any real context. And that's just, it's just a total emotional pull in a certain direction. And then the, the one part that I think is and I actually shared this with Samuel Say uh, when I was doing the notes, putting it together, and he agreed with me on this. Um, probably, Samuel, we should probably get you on the show. You and I could just talk about how painful this was to read. Um, but there were, the last one for me was the ethnic Gnosticism. That's what a phrase I believe it was uh, Vodi Balcom uh, coined. Gnosticism being being that you know, uh, that religious belief system that, hey, there is a special form of knowledge that only we have. You have to subscribe to our teaching to get it. Well, ethnic Gnosticism takes that to another level and says there are certain ethnic groups that have a special knowledge about oppression. It's built into them because they've been oppressed for so very long. And if someone tells you who is a person of color, who's black or whatnot, 
if, if, if you were racist, they know. They, they know you're a racist. And, and they know what you said or did was racist. And there's no way around that. So it is a train wreck. It, but the thing that's really sad about this is that this is a book that is getting into the hands at multiple levels. I mean, I think it was Seattle or somebody, uh, some city that used this book as a training manual for their diversity course. And they were telling their, their employees and stuff, be prepared to be have people promoted over you and, and you just have to give up your that position because you're white. I mean, they were literally saying this because that's what this book calls for. And so and it's so it's not that it's an obscure book. It is actually kind of one of those books that is on the pulse of this movement. The funny thing about this, Rich, and I didn't address this in the review, we, we both said she's a white woman. She's made a huge name for herself. She's getting paid like $20,000 to go to speaking engagements. You've got some folks within the black community that are suddenly dawning on them. This white woman's making a lot of money off of our movement. <laughs> and so now she's starting to catch some grief, but it's already well ingrained. And what she's teaching, what she's pulling is, is all from their resources. So it is, I hate to say this, but if you want a primer on what this system is teaching, this is a book you can read. It's a, it is painful it is going to give you a headache but you have to read it critically and i and the reason i did this rich and i i had one person who just really did not get why i wanted to do this um you know his point was well i don't have time for this i have sermons to prep and it's like i don't think every christian has to read this but i think some of us who are doing shows like this or doing blogs and stuff i think it behooves us to be informed about the arguments from the other side so that we're not straw man representing them um, you, you and I were talking in pre-show about our topic tonight. And one of those, the things that we talked about is knowing what actual socialism or Marxism or something is, because we can mischaracterize something. If you don't understand the argument, you can mischaracterize it. And guess what? It's really easy to dismiss you. Even if you're, even if you're making a good point, the funny thing is now is that, you know, some of us are starting to read these books and now they're saying, oh, well, you've read the books, but you don't have a PhD in this, so we don't need to debate you. <laughs> Poor Neil Shenvey. He, <laughs> he, this dude has been reading these books like crazy, and he's been standing against critical race theory and critical theory in general. And he, what he's done and what some of the others have been doing in taking the time to read these books, they're informing people. And so now the folks that are pro-critical race theory, uh, you know, the uh, apologists, they're realizing they're on shaky ground now. So when people like Neil say, "Well, I'll be happy to debate you," oh no, you you're not worth listening to. You don't have a PhD. You 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 do you don't understand this. This is beyond you. <laughs> so it was first we were mischaracterizing. Then we then we didn't read the books. Now we have to have a PhD. So it's getting worse. They keep moving the goalpost. <laughs> well, it it was a movement. I forget during which era and I, I i please forgive me because i didn't this just came to my to my mind um from some reading for tonight's top topic research for tonight's topic but back it's been a few decades ago and i can't remember if it was called black blacksism or blacksist b-l-a-x-i-s-m or b-l-a-x-i-s-t but basically it was a black communist movement 
um, I think it originated in Africa, South Africa during apartheid, but basically it was a, a mixture of communism and socialism controlled and run by blacks. And, and the premise of that was that blacks should be in full control and they should be the ones to decide and distribute and determine who gets what because of the oppression that they've endured for so many generations. Mm-hmm. I really I really believe that that will eventually emerge from white fragility books and mm-hmm. things along those lines and the direction that that movement and ideology is headed. I really think that some form of that will take shape or, or remerge. Um, and like I said, I, I, please forgive me, I don't remember if it was called Black Sist or Blackism. For some reason, I'm thinking it was Blackism, B-L-A-X-I-S-M, Black Communist Movement. But um, I really, I, that's just my personal opinion. I think something along those lines will eventually emerge from this. And sadly, you have Christians that are not researching, mm-hmm. they're not reading, they're just going with the flow because this happens to be the topic du jour and what everyone, you know, is the train of the day, you know, the popular train of the day, they're going to hop on that and go with it because of their own selfish reasons. And sadly, some of them, I think, go along with it because they actually believe it. But um, when it applies to Christianity, our standard is the Bible. We're to stand firm in the Word of God and know and understand what it teaches and not all these worldly philosophies because they come and go, but the word of God stands true throughout all of eternity. And sadly, I did not realize over the decades that there had been such a huge influx and a huge um, promotion of Christian socialism and Christian socialist. Um, During the research for tonight's show, it really opened my eyes as to how easily that way of thinking has influenced churches overseas. And I fear that some form of Christian socialism may arise out of topics such as, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the white fragility and racism and everything else, because one book that they all seem to focus on is the book of Acts when they try to twist it to demonstrate that Christianity by nature is more akin to socialism than it is any other type of political or social economic system. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you what your thoughts were. No, I absolutely agree with you. And that's, it's, you did, that was like a spot on transition, man. Great job. <laughs> um, uh, and by the way, uh, before we get into this, if you happen to be a person by the name of James White, just hit pause and don't listen to the rest of it because I really don't want you to make our show bleed red. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look at my Twitter feed last night. James White gave me a heart attack. Threatened to listen to my show. So, <laughs> so if you're James White, you don't have to listen to the show. I, I, I don't need the bad grade, really. Um, <laughs> turn me into a puddle of goo. All right, back on track. Uh, so, well, I'll, I'll just I'll just throw this in, um, Doctor White. If you are listening, <laughs> you're more than welcome to to come on and 
discuss any topic of your choice with us, especially um, topics of the day, because Chris and I both really enjoy your teachings. Um, I think I, I think Chris may be more of a fanboy than he is a student <laughs> of your teachings. Oh, 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 well, you just knifed me right in the back. Well, I, <laughs> Anybody get the number Dr. of that White truck? <laughs> Dr. White couldn't be here tonight, so I just thought I would, oh. you know, kind of <laughs> throw you on the bus and wow. go with where he was talking about exposing you. So <laughs> Threw me under the bus, ran over me, backed it up, and then stabbed me in the back. Ouch! Oh, that was well, brutal. You, well, in 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 your post, you said you were a fanboy. I said no, no, no. So you meant that fanboy thing was for the conference. I was joking about I was going to fanboy all over everybody I got to go meet. I never said that of Doctor White. Well, I could oh. point it out. Someone told someone mentioned something along the lines of you giggling. Okay, like I said schoolgirl. No, I said I said I, okay. See, now you're going to make us go through this story, and we're supposed to be doing a show, and this is where he gets his red pen out, and he starts marking us off points. Okay, so I joked online uh, that it's funny to see uh, when Dr. White interacts with anything that I or others post, because he is a very busy man. He has a lot to, and he's usually, if he's interacting with people... He's usually interacting on some serious theological issues. To see him interact with something that you post, either to hit the like button or make a joke with you or whatever, it's a, it just makes me laugh. And so I said I, I get the schoolboy school giggles when I see that because I know he has, his time is precious. That thing went so far into left field. <laughs> I just, I'm like, wait a minute, how did we get here? So, you know, Stephen Melenzen made the same joke, uh, in, in, but in his case, he had posted how he had gotten a B on a paper. And I guess Dr. White jokingly told him, well, maybe not jokingly, uh, well, Calvin never got a B. So he was, <laughs> poor, poor Stephen was crushed. And so, you know, and uh, yeah, Dr. White responds, well, Calvin didn't get a B. So there. And <laughs> from there, the conversation got weird. And so Stephen says, fine, I'll send you my, my next paper. And I'm like, dude, you want it to come back bleeding? <laughs> because I, I, you know what the demanding expectations that he would have. He's a very intelligent man. And so well, it, Stephen gives me some grief saying, what are you trying to do, break my heart? And I said, no, no, do you under, it says, understand something? You know, have you even listened to his show? I'm glad he doesn't listen to my show. I'm glad he doesn't re read my blogs. And that's when J Dr. White says, oh, that can change. <laughs> And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like giving your paper to one of the smartest professors in the college, knowing that what's going to come back is going to be so filled with red ink that you should have just never bothered to begin with. <laughs> so thank you for well, making well, me relive that. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but what, what I found... Amusing was the the title of of that dividing line was Chris Hahn Holtz exposed. Yeah, that was that was. I I, I still is like I don't care if you're joking or not. That terrified me. <laughs> I <laughs> I wanted to run. I was like ready to shut it all down. I was like that that's it. We're done. You know, it's it was it was a good run, folks. We're gonna we're gonna pack this in while we still have a, still have a show to work with. <laughs> 
and I, I could hear the music in your head going dun 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 dun. Yeah. Oh yes, it was definitely the Snidely Whiplash, you know, strapping the person, the lady to the train tracks moment. It's like, well, that's the end of that. <laughs> so with that build up. Oh, if, you, if com- he ever com- listens com- to this, we're so doomed. Uh- <laughs> and I, I sabotage the best transition I probably have ever done. I just completely sabotage it myself. Uh, see, that, that serves you right. Okay, so shifting gears and grinding them as we're trying to get back on track as this train nearly goes off the rails. Okay, so but yes, you did have a fantastic uh, pers- you know, point in we see the same kind of manipulation that goes into bringing something like a Marxist paradigm that critical race theory is, trying to shove that into the church. We see that same kind of manipulation going on, and has gone on for really years, of the idea of trying to use the scriptures to promote something like socialism. And, and the reason we actually started to talk about this show when we actually planned it before we went to before I went to um, uh, Cruciform Conference, excuse me, I'm still trying to adjust back to, to West Coast time. And tomorrow we shift gears and have to reset the clock back an hour. I'm going to be a complete mess this week, this week. Okay, so but we had talked about this because I actually saw that argument start to develop online again. It was just the week before we went. And so I jokingly talked about, cause I'm starting to try and use the technology that's available to in between podcasts, do video uh, things like, uh, you know, like uh, Twitter or Facebook live, YouTube and stuff I'd like to you know try to put some more content out there for you guys. And I had uh, done a test run and had to, and, and the interesting thing is that Twitter's live thing, the, um, what do they call that part? No, what is it called again? I got to find my phone now cause I can't remember what's called. Anyway, um, the, the, the live program that they use, y- you can get people just jumping in from all over the country cause it actually will show you if there's uh it's called Periscope. It, you can actually go online and, and tap on a map and see what's live and stuff like that. And so you'll get these weird uh, people jumping in. And I had a, one of them actually develop into some rather interesting conversations just doing a test run. So we, we were playing with that. And I, and I jokingly said, after watching that discussion erupt, that Jesus was a socialist and you know the apostles were all socialists and stuff. I, I jokingly commented, maybe I should go online and do this. And and it, you, Rich, you were the one that said, no, we need to make this a show. And I, and so that's what we were going to talk about tonight. But we are seeing that uh, once again, people manipulating the Word of God, t- ripping it completely out of its context, and a, trying to jam in like a square peg in a round hole, trying to jam in a godless ideology. So they can justify it and get Christians on board with something that has nothing to do with the Bible, and so that was that was what we were talking about doing before uh, we went on the trip, and so we wanted to follow up with that tonight. Um, Rich, I know, but uh, before we go into some of the passages that we uh, that we were looking at, that typically are kind of the go-to verses for yes, Jesus was a socialist. Um, I know you had done some research, just looking up some information about what socialism and, and communism and stuff does. Why don't we start with that as, as kind of our start, our, our base, and then we'll work into the rest of this. Well, this this will be super, super brief. 
But something you said earlier when it comes to opposing arguments and mislabeling what they're saying, this this is something I I see going on now very, very prevalently online is calling the Black Lives Movement, you know, some people call it socialist, some call it Marxist, some call it a form of communism, all these different words. Um, first, I would like to encourage you to do a little research on your own and read and, and understand what the differences are between capitalism, socialism, and communism. Um, what I'm going to share is extremely brief and strips it down to its absolute bare bones, but I would encourage you to go and read and, and, and do a little research on your own and, and understand the aspects of each a little bit better because in today's day and age, you know, we're not exposed to communism like you and I were growing up when it comes to, you know, having to sit and worry about the potential nuclear war breaking out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back during the reign of the Soviet Union, you know, there are still communist countries today, but you don't hear about that nearly as much as we did growing up because you and I both are, mm -hmm. you know, 45 is in our rear view mirror at this point. We're <laughs> <laughs> streaming down the, the highway, so to speak. But, um, but just a, de a, quick, a quick breakdown between capitalism and socialism. Both are economic systems and both claim they are best poised to advance human flourishing but they make different claims over how resources should and can be rationed. And that word rationed is critical when it comes to understanding both socialism and communism. But capitalism is an economic system which allows markets to dictate and allocate sources through prices and property rights and profit lawsuits. Basically, free market system, you, you make a product, you put a price on it and you sell it and people buy it. And if someone else comes along with the same product, they, they can sell it for less than you if they've been able to. And, you know, the basis of the entire free market system. But socialism is a system which the government, not the individual, but it's a system which the government owns the means of production and through coercive taxation and wealth redistribution, it allocates, meaning the government, it allocates the resources and it makes decisions over property, prices, and production. In capitalism, the individual does that. In socialism, the government tells you and dictates to you how, when, where, and the means by which all of this goes on. Mm -hmm. But um, also... Communism is a progression from socialism, meaning communism pulls from socialism, but it takes it one step farther. You know, both are a political and economic system, which, abo which would abolish private property and give to, give to individuals based on need. But the problem is, when it comes to socialism or communism, the the problem is not the the theory behind each 
the problem comes to when when and how it is executed, meaning mm-hmm. who decides and their motivations in the way that they redistribute what is owned. If you look at communism um, under the Soviet Union, you know, Marxist theories sound great on paper. Oh, wow, everybody's going to be equal. We all get a fair share. Um, individuals can't own anything. But the problem is the government owns everything. So then you're completely dependent upon the government for everything in your life, your food, your clothing, your housing, your job, um, under those forms that also dictates to you how many children you can have and when you can have them in certain circumstances like in um, communist China. But the problem is in that form of government, the ones that actually make those decisions are the ones in power and they subrogate all those beneath them. Socialism cleans it up and tries to say, well, you know, the government decides all of these things, but we still retain ownership of our property and our monies, except the problem gets when it comes to socialism in order for it to be executed. It's done through high taxation, meaning that, you know, regardless of what your income is, you're helping to pay for and redistribute your own wealth to individuals that may not necessarily need it, but for the simple fact of being so lazy and not willing to get out and try to better themselves, they're willing to just sit back and, and, be, and have it give to them. Um, on paper, like I said, it all sounds great, wow, that that means that there will be no more homeless people. There will be no more starving people. There will be no more, you know, poor people. But it never works out like that. Mm -hmm. Throughout the entire history of the world, any of these forms of government basically points back to a dictatorship and who controls and runs the country, the dictator. Mm -hmm. And regardless of whether you've got one person making the decisions for the entire country or you have a council of a hundred. Ultimately, those that are in power are going to not only want to keep that power, but they're going to be striving and fighting for even more power and control. Right. And that that's about as simply broke down as I can put it. Would you like to add anything to that before we go further? I, I think one of the things that's really important to, 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 excuse me, one of the important distinctions to make when we're talking about capitalism versus, say, socialism, communism, you made it. You said it very early on. It, with capitalism, it is the individual who owns property, who owns product, who owns means of production, and he decides with what he's going to do with that. When it's socialism or communism, it is the government that makes those decisions. So you may be the person working and making a product, but you don't make the final decision about what happens with your product. You don't get to set the prices. You don't get to set uh, the exchange rates or any of that stuff. You don't get to determine how much uh, profit you should uh, obtain. The government does. So when we're talking about from a perspective of the, the, the two different systems, one can be self-correcting in, in so much as if a 
if uh, if an eco, if the market is getting out of control, prices are going too high, people can stop buying or they can go to competitors who create different products at different prices. And those who are gaining and maintaining control can start to lose. And so one elevates another group, uh, you know, a, another set of uh, manufacturers and, and uh, providers, and it brings the other guys down and keeps things in a competitive market. Now, part of that problem is, of course, where you have monopolies and stuff like that. It's not a perfect system, of course, but it can, it can be self-correcting. The problem with a government-run system is you have to believe that the government is all benevolent and will never abuse the power given to it. <laughs> um, anybody remember that this was supposed to be two weeks to flatten the curve? Um, so <laughs> the government is if the if the government could never abuse it. Yeah, that sounds great on paper. The government historically has always abused that authority. Why? Biblical understanding of man. Man is broken, busted, sinful because his heart is turned toward himself. It is enslaved to sin. It is not to do what is best for his fellow man. It is always going to be for what's himself. So when you take a sinful man and you put him in charge of something and you say you get to set market prices, you get to determine where money goes, you get to determine get to determine who provides what product and what resources to what people, that goes right to a person's head. And that's why you had dictatorships. Uh, that's that's you know that's why you had you know communist Russia back in the day. That's why you have China, with which will force abortions on people and force people to live and work in different places. Why you have concentration camps in China? It is because the heart of man is continually an idol factory. It is always worshiping himself, and it is always going to seek for itself. So a biblical understanding just of how man is would indicate that concentrating power with one group of people to determine how the market works and who gets what, that's a terrible system to begin with. So just also, that distinction also, makes, a big di makes a big difference. Also, brother, I'd like to add this prior to, to mm -hmm. going any further. Under some forms of socialism, but always under communism, if you do not do exactly what the government wants you to do, mm -hmm. you're either going to be fined and taxed until you're completely broke, or you will be put in jail, or under communism, more times than not, if you disobey what the government tells you to do, you will be put to death. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, once you get into that realm of socialism and communism, it doesn't just remain, and it does not just apply to economics. It, it branches over. It goes into every aspect of your life to the point to where the government is dictating what you can and cannot worship, mm -hmm. who you can and cannot vote for, who you can and cannot follow. So by definition, once an individual or group gain that much control, they're not going to be satisfied with just money and redistributing the wealth. They want to control all aspects of your life, even your thoughts, and to the point of worship, because everything I've ever read when it applies to socialism and communism, 
they also get into they get into areas other than economics, just like in Europe now, because it's for the most part full blown socialism. They do not allow you to you cannot stand up and stand on the Bible and say this is a sin because then you're encroaching on someone else's feelings and their mm-hmm. quote unquote rights. And you're the one breaking the law because you're speaking against what they embrace. And that's, that's the caveat when it comes to especially communism, but even socialism, it drills farther than just economics. It, it engulfs all aspects of your life and even regulates what's allowed to be brought to your home. Um, the, it regulates what churches are allowed to preach on and preach about. I mean, over the years that you and I have been together, we've known of, of quite a few brothers in Christ that have been arrested in Europe for saying homosexuality is a sin because they were preaching what the Bible actually states, but because it goes against what those socialist viewpoints are, they were arrested. Yep. And like I said, there's been more than one over the years that this has happened to. And if I remember correctly, was it Canada that started trying to regulate what churches could and could not say from the pulpit, even if it was in the Bible? Am I, am I thinking right? Was it Canada or was it... I know Canada has been involved in that. Um, I know that, uh, I think, was it uh, was it Dr. White? I think his France has been doing is starting to do move toward that too, although they're saying it's going, you know, because of Islam and Sharia law and stuff. But I think you'll see that being clearly being applied to Christians very quickly. So your point is absolutely correct that when you're t- dealing with the issue of the government having authority to not only regulate what you can have and where you can work and what you can make, but it that bleeds into other areas of life as well. And inevitably, that will run contradictory to Scripture because if man is the one deciding what men can do, and man doesn't like what God has to say, and man never does, you're always going to find yourself in a position where you're going to have to determine, do we let Christians believe and practice and teach this, even though it runs contradictory to what we want, or do we exercise the power we now have to take that away from them? And that has always been the case. Religion has always come up against a socialistic system. It has always been seen as an enemy, and it will continue to be. You know, look at China. uh, I was just going to say, look at China. They were hard hardcore communists, hated the church, shut it down every chance they get. Then they supposedly become more open to it, and now they're right back to doing it again. It's always going to be that case. But go ahead, Rich. I have a question for you, and we will get into this deeper, longer, you know, further into the show. Um, but after, well, not even just after re- researching for this week, I'll just ask you a question. Okay, reading the Bible and comparing it to the three that we just spoke about, capitalism, socialism, or communism, what does the Bible actually teach when it applies to how Christians should view the economy and and should view helping others? Um, We know that when it comes to all types of issues, the Bible's twisted and taken out of context, and people 
eisegesis and twist it verses to to suit what they're wanting and trying to they try to twist scripture to mean what they want it to mean but just overall which form of economy does the bible most look like as it applies to what we live in today well let, let's start with um let's let's go starting with the the, the kind of go-to verse that everybody likes to talk about when it comes to the Bible. They say the Bible promotes socialism. All right. Um, let me grab my, my Bible app here. You know, in Acts chapter 4, we see where the church is coming together and they have all things in common. That's, that's what people say. Oh, see, this is socialism. This is the, this is the proof that... Um, that the that the Bible is in fact a uh, a, a socialist book, and so uh, let's see. So uh, Acts chapter four verse thirty two. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now nobody said anything that they owned or that they had was their own. They had, they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and bought the, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it, would eat, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, you know, 32 to 37 of chapter 4. This is the one that you will almost always hear someone point to that says, the Bible teaches socialism. Now, Rich, we started with the, you know, explaining socialism is a government-run, government-sanctioned program. This is the first thing I want people to understand. Socialism is government run. Okay, government run. So let's talk about what the Bible actually describes when we're talking about the issue of property, because that's what was brought up here. So let's start with this. Going in Numbers chapter 34, verses 13 to 15. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe, for the tribe of the people of Reuben by their father's houses, and the tribe of the people of Gab by their father's houses have received their inheritance, and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, uh, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. So, in Numbers, Moses is being told, you, you, you get the one or the two and a half tribes on the, this side of the uh, Jordan, and then the rest of the nine and a half tribes they're on the other side of the Jordan. When so, when you go to settle the land of Israel, you're going to give them the land by lot. Okay, the land was being given to the Jews for their per for their possession and for their use by God. God established that the tribes would own this land. It was their land, okay? It wasn't somebody else's land. It wasn't land held in common. It was their land, okay? And God was establishes in his law giving personal ownership. 
Okay, the personal ownership was so established that in the year of Jubilee, property sold was to be returned to the families who originally owned it. Let's look at Leviticus 25, 23 through 28. This is the Lord's command to Israel. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. So the land ultimately belongs to God. He says, you know, so he establishes, this is mine to give. So when you sell it, it's not to be sold in perpetuity. In other words, you can't sell it and it, you know, uh, you know, and you lose it. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in the and all the country you possess, you shall allow the redemption of the land. If you come and redeem what his brother has sold, if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds means sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he shows shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return it to his property. So you could own the land, you could sell it for a time, you could pay money to bring it back, and in the year of Jubilee, if you could, if you were never in a position to get it back by purchasing, you could it could be restored to its owner. So God had the the land was God's. It was given to the people, and He establishes private ownership of pro, of those properties that lines. Mind you, this is not capitalism as we see it in America, for example. But God is saying, I ha- I, I, the world is mine, I've created it, I've given you this. It belongs to you. If you sell it, that's fine, you can recover it. And if you can never financially recover it, in the year of Jubilee, it can be restored to you. So there is a property ownership being established by God. Then he also said, you know, that it also in um, Deuteronomy nineteen fourteen, we talk about there's the uh, it says you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You weren't allowed to change property lines, because you were taking land that didn't belong to you. You were stealing. So God. You know, gives the land to Israel, says these tribes, you are allotted these particular, uh, you will be allotted this land by lot. You can own it, till it, use it. You can sell it and redeem it. You can be restored back to you. And by the way, don't you dare move the markers that establish the property lines. So God had zero problems with property ownership. He had no problem with this person owning something and selling it. He had no problem with people paying for it and redeeming it, but he had a real problem with anybody trying to take property that wasn't theirs. So the idea which socialism kind of uh, says is that property ownership and the ability to sell and make a profit or to, to engage in commerce is contradictory just, just in looking what God did with Israel. Granted, the land, you know, what we when we see God working through the uh, the people of Israel, as Todd Friel often says, it was for a land, a seed, and a promise. It was it was that land through the, whom the, that people would be uh, built up, and through that people, the seed, the Messiah would come. But we see God working in their lives and establishing that private property ownership 
and the ability to sell and engage in commerce was acceptable to God. It was God's idea, and you weren't allowed to take somebody's property from them. You had to, you, it either had to be obtained through commerce or restored in the year of Jubilee or by purchase, but you could never you take from some some uh, take property from someone without being in sin because you violated God's law regarding private property. So when we look at the book of Acts, what we're seeing is, you know, they say the the individuals here had property, they owned property, but when they came together and they had people in need, they, they treated their property as, this is not my own. I'm going to sell this because there are people in need. So they did what God said they could do. They sold property, and then what they did with that money was to help those in need. You're not seeing socialism here. They owned property. It was theirs to do with as they wished, and they did as they wished. They helped those in need by selling property to someone else who would then use it. This was not a socialism system. This was people engaging in what we would probably call capitalism. But then instead of using that money for themselves, they used it for the benefit of the people in the church. So this is nothing that looks like that. And that what's interesting, Rich, is in the following chapter... When we deal in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their property. And then they bring that, you know, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some for himself of the proceeds, and brought only part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is important. Pay attention to what happens here. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain it remain your own? Before it was sold, it was belonged to Ananias. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. What happened here? You know, because you know, he then says, you know, uh, when when Ananias heard these words. Oh, uh, oh, I apologize. I skipped a line. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? When it was unsold, it was his. After it was sold, now it's somebody else's, was it not at your disposal? In other words, the money you had, could you do whatever you wanted with it? Okay? Why is it you contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to uh, man, but to God. And then he falls down and breathes his last. Why? Rich, why does that happen? Because the Bible, the Bible clearly states that he lied to the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Um, and I'd kind of like, well, I, I'd like to backtrack on you just a little bit um, and go back to earlier portion of the book of Acts. When you, you, when you were reading and it was talking about that they had all things in common and were selling their property. Um, some of the different versions of the Bible that you read actually translate that as from time to time, meaning that from time to time they sold property and gave the money to the apostles for to, to help those in need. But for those that 
that interpret that meaning that they absolutely sold everything they owned and gave all the money to the apostles, meaning at this point they owned nothing. Everything from that point forward was going to be provided to them by the early church. Mm -hmm. There's one problem with that. If they sold absolutely everything they owned, then how were they meeting house to house and breaking bread as the scripture states? Mm -hmm. So the interpretation of from time to time really applies because if they sold everything they owned, they would not own a house to be meeting in. Mm -hmm. Also, <clears throat> what transpired even farther back before that was, and you read it, that over 3,000 received salvation on the day of Pentecost. Okay, where were these 3,000 people from? Were all of these 3,000, were they ones that already had homes and resided there in Jerusalem? No, because the Bible makes it clear that from every nation under God, men were gathered because it was the day of Pentecost, meaning they had traveled to Jerusalem, to the temple, in order to worship. And the Bible lays out all the different nations and different languages that these men had originated from. And more than likely, you know, a lot of them brought their families with them. So out of those 3,000 that received Christ on the day of Pentecost, they're, they're in Jerusalem. Some of them have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem. Okay, on the day of Pentecost, they received Christ, and they were sitting and learning from the apostles, meaning the apostles were teaching them the things of Christ. They were explaining to them the prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ. They were explaining to them the teachings of Christ as they had heard from Christ themselves, because they were, these were the apostles themselves that walked with Christ and learned from Christ. So the apostles were teaching these men what Christ had taught them. Okay, that, that, would have not, that wouldn't have been a short four-hour class. These people from all these different countries would have had to have provisions, meaning they would have needed to have been provided food. They would have needed to have been provided somewhere to sleep because when they left their home countries and traveled to the temple, they never expected what came next. They didn't expect to hear these men and disciples standing up there in front of them and hearing people talk in their own language. And the, the people that were talking were, you know, very uneducated, low-class considered citizens. You know, they were fishermen and, and basically uneducated. But yet here, here they hear these people talking in their own language. So, you know, in order to provide for those 3,000, but the Bible doesn't, you know, break down how, how many of those 3,000 were from other countries, but we can gather from what was going on on the day of Pentecost that a great number of them were from other countries. So one thing in that would have been hospitality, the the disciples and the apostles in order to accommodate these foreigners they would have had to have had 
a way to provide for them because it doesn't state how long the 3,000 stayed. Actually, based on reading the entire book of Acts, it, to me it implies that they actually remained until Saul started ravaging the church and everyone was dispersed and, and went, went more than likely went back to their own countries because that was how the gospel spread was from the persecution of Saul in these early times. So, you know, to assume that all of these early Christians sold absolutely everything that they owned and redistributed it among everybody else is ridiculous because Scripture contradicts that in these statements. Mm -hmm. Um, One other thing, too, that you mentioned, it spoke about Barnabas. He sold a piece of property. It did not say he sold all of his property. It said that he sold a piece of his property. And and that is tantamount into understanding what all of this actually means. And as as it, you know, progressed and they were sharing among everyone. But part of the reason that they were sharing among everyone, like I stated, is because you had so many there that were from other places that did not have a residence Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost. I just wanted to kind of backtrack on that just a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. That kind of establishes and and sets forth what, you know, was going on. But in the case of Sapphira and Ananias, you know, it, it didn't even say that they sold everything that they owned. But you know, they they sold a piece of property, and obviously they maybe had told the apostles that, okay, we're going to sell this and give everything we, we get from it and, and let it be shared among everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they lied about that. They sold it for a different amount, and they kept back por- a portion of those funds. Now, there's a lot of debate as to why they kept back part of that. But what's interesting is what happened after they were struck dead. I mean, there was no mourning. There was no big-time funeral like you normally would see, like in the case of Lazarus. Mm -hmm. You didn't have people mourning and weeping. Um, In fact, fear came upon everyone, not only the believers, but fear came upon those that were still just, you know, residents of Jerusalem and the the Jews in that area. I mean, they didn't want to have anything to do with these quote-unquote Christians in their mind at that time because, you know, something miraculous happened. A man and a woman lied about what they gave or lied about what they received, and they're struck dead, and they're just immediately carried out and buried with no funeral, no mourning, no weeping, no nothing. And that struck fear both in the hearts of the disciples and in the people of Jerusalem. And we might can come back to to the whys in a moment, but, you know, that's something we need to look at. If, if, If you're going to assume Acts teaches socialism, that would be the only thing that you could point to as an example. Mm-hmm. But the example is, if you don't do what's expected of you, you will die. That is about the only true portion of socialism or communism that could be applied. 
Mm-hmm. But looking at it, you know, biblically, and I think you were probably headed here next, was the fact that we're still talking about the church and we're talking about individuals. Mm-hmm. Government was not involved in any of this that was going on. No, absolutely correct. And that's the, that was uh, what I was getting at when I asked you about Ananias and Sapphira. Why were they struck dead? It has nothing to do with how much they gave. It has everything to do with they lied about what they gave. See, Peter makes it clear. That was your property, Ananias. You could have kept it. It was yours. You could have sold it and kept the proceeds for yourself. That was yours. There's nothing in what Peter says where he is condemning Ananias for keeping property, selling property, or keeping money. None of that is mentioned by Peter. It is the lie that is addressed. He sells a property. Let's say it was worth 100,000 shekels. And he gives 50,000 to the apostles. He keeps half. Let's just throw, throw that out there. And he brings it to the. And we know that this is the question because when he, Sapphira is questioned, verse, uh, in ver, verse 7, it says, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, whatever the price was. And she says, yes, for so much. They conspired together to say, we sold it for really this much, but we're going to tell them it was this much. So they lied as if to say, we sold this property, we got 50,000 shekels, here's all 50,000 shekels. But in fact, they got 100,000. That was the problem, is that they lied to the church, they lied to the apostles, and they were giving uh, the impression that they were so generous that they sold the property and gave all to the church. But they didn't. Why? Why is that the problem? Because that when they did that, it was in their heart to present themselves as far more generous than they were, yet keeping for themselves a portion, knowing that they had lied. And they had lied before God, and they had lied before the apostles, and they were lying to the people. It was an issue of pride. They wanted to be seen as giving all when they hadn't. That is why they are struck dead by the Holy Spirit. That is why they are carried out. That is why when everybody looks at them, they go, yikes! God is serious here. It had nothing to do with if they had sold it for 100,000 shekels, they kept 50,000, they said, here's 50,000 for the church, and they had said it that way, there would have been zero problem. It is the lie that they were more generous than they had been that with, for which God judged them. So it is this whole issue, this whole issue, has nothing to do with personal uh, property possession or sale of property or earning a profit or anything. There's no sin in any of that in and of itself. But when you lie to God and you say, here's everything I have, God, it's all for you to use, and you lie to God to make it look more generous than you are, 
The God judges you for that. And that's what happened here. The people like, uh, for example, Barnabas, when he sold that one piece of that one field, he saw the needs of the church and he knew he could provide and out of generosity and, and you know, Holy Spirit leading and guiding him. He sells this property and gives to the church for no other reason than to provide for the church. For no other reason to you know than to glorify God, knowing there were people in the church that had need. That was the issue. That's what's going on in chapter four and five of Acts. It is not state-sanctioned socialism. Who had pe- you had people who owned property, who it was fine for them to own property. They engaged in commerce with that property, but rather than keeping it for themselves, they gave to those in need and the church provided for those needs by those means. This is what the church does. The church helps those inside the church with what it has available to it and distributes to those in need within the church. That's what the church does. That's not socialism. That's God saying, I've given to you as he did with Israel, with the land. Use it for this purpose. You know, engage in commerce, but do it rightly. Do it godly. Do it righteously. And we see throughout scripture where we are called to help those in need. The church, not the state. The church. So when we see in Acts is that people acted out of their own godly desires, not out of compulsion when they helped those in need. So, Rich, here's the thing when we're talking about why is this not an example of socialism? So there are a few things I thought about as I was going through this. And ultimately, I came down to this. What is absent in this passage? With the, when the socialist wants to say, this is an example of socialism, why, what, what is absent from this passage? Well, first... Why did the thing, you know, what, where's the socialistic explanation for why this was happening? See, there's no explanation other than the meeting of the needs of others in the church that's provided. It's they saw a need, they gave it. Okay? There's no socialistic explanation. You have to inject socialism into the passage in order to affirm that. There's no concept of spreading the wealth here. It was about meeting the genuine needs of the people. Okay? So, socialism. And communism tend to say, oh, everybody, it's all unequal. Everybody needs to have the same. So we're going to take this and we're going to spread it out. But this wasn't anything like, like that. What we see is that there were, there were people in need. People said, I'm not going to count this as my own. I'm going to personally sell what I have and I'm going to give it to the church and the church you give to those in need. This was an issue of generosity. It was about meeting the needs of the members. It was not about spreading the wealth, which is a socialist concept. Also, as absent is any indication that this was done by compulsion. See, socialism says everything's unequal, and Chris, Rich, you have too much. Those guys over there, they don't have enough. We're going to tax you more and give to them and tax them less, and we're going to redistribute the wealth. This is That's done by compulsion. The government mandates how much you will give and how much they will take and how much will be given to someone else. This is done by generosity. The church in no way, the apostles in no way require these individuals to give up personal property. And we see that when Peter confronts Ananias. This was your property. You could have done anything you want with it. There's no compulsion. So there's, 
Everything that we see the church doing is willing and voluntary. They're giving up what they have. They count it as, you know, it's like, I don't, I'm not worried about it. I, you know, I'm going to take this, I'm going to sell it, I'm gonna, and I'm going to give to those in need. This was giving out of their own, from their own desire, as I said before, get, get, giving out of their abundance to those who had none. Okay. Nothing in this passage is about elevating the poor and lowering the rich. That is a common uh, theme in socialism. There's poor people and there's rich people. The rich people are hoarding wealth. We need to take that away and give it to the uh, poor people, and we need to balance this out. There's nothing in Scripture in this passage that indicates that this was about wealth redistribution, about property to be uh, taken into a government-sanctioned program and redistributed. Okay, this uh, it. There's nothing that indicates that if you had wealth or if you had property, you were considered to be in sin or in violation of some sort of biblical precept or command. There's no, te uh, there's no teaching that to love their neighbor, rich members had to lower themselves in order to lift up the living standards of the poor. None of that is there. It's literally showing that the people are sharing for meeting the actual needs of the members. Socialism is about changing lifestyles. That's what the whole uh, critical race theory and Marxism and stuff that's being promulgated in the, uh, our culture right now is about. There are certain groups who have been oppressed. There are certain groups that have been the oppressors. We need to balance this out. There needs to be a flipping of the script. We need to change the system. None of that is being, pro uh, being shown here in this passage. Okay, and finally, there's no indication that the state was the means of distribution. You go right back to what it says in chapter four. Okay, that um, there was uh, where's uh, the, 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 okay, verse thirty four. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. To where laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, great. Now I want to sneeze. <laughs> okay, uh, they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had need. It was not brought to a government program. It was brought to the church, which is what we see going on in the church today. When you give an offering, you're giving of what you have to the church so the church can function and they can meet the needs of people within the church. When the church says, hey, we have you know such and such family who's had an illness or a loss of a loved one or uh, you know, a loss of a job, the church comes together and provides meals and food and, and help. That's what the church does. It is not the state coming in and dictating to the, uh, the people at large, give us, in fact, we're taking by force what you own, and we're going to give it to the people we think are in need. This is the people coming together as the church, saying, Apostles, you know who has need. We've sold this. Here's what we want you to use this for. And that's what happened. This was an entirely voluntary system, and it was done by the church, in the church, and no other but thing, nothing else but the church. Okay, so there's no state compulsion. There's no state agency. There's no government-run program here. This is in-house, in the church, recognizing immediate needs within the church. Rich, that's so important when we look at this. And then people say, well, see, they, they, they all shared equally. There, there's, there's a lot more to the, that than just saying shared equally. What does socialism actually believe? Which is what actually happened inside that uh, incident or in that, uh, that passage? 
two entirely different things. And we have to be willing to uh, point that out to people because I they, I think there are a lot of folks that they're afraid to to, to contradict the, uh, the socialist because, wow, that kind of sounds socialist. I mean, they're helping people in need, but there's a huge difference between voluntarily giving up of your own so others may have versus compulsion by the government and they decide who's in need and they decide who has too much and they destroy the concept of private property ownership. So um, before we go on with any further, any thoughts? Well, for one thing, we need to look at who, who it was that were sharing. They were not sharing all of this with the rest of Jerusalem. It was those within this church body. Mm-hmm. It was the it was the church taking care of fellow believers. There's nothing in here that indicates that they were distributing to others in that area that were in need. But reading the text, I mean, I think it's very safe to conclude that all of this was being done among the true believers. And one commentary I read makes an interesting point when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, excuse me, I can talk, (laughs) was the fact that, you know, all of Jerusalem sees this going on. And you've got, and I'm paraphrasing terribly, but, you know, among those, you're going to have the freeloaders. And they see this group over here, and they've got plenty to eat, and they're sharing with each other. Um, Who's to say that there were not false converts or false professing Christians just so they could get in on this gravy train. And the example set by this man and woman that were struck dead because they were not walking and keeping step within the Holy Spirit was to strike fear in the non-believers that may have slipped in among them to drive them out because this was a very, very special one-time occurrence. And people that want to point to it and say that this is an example of socialism, well, the problem is, like it is with any other verse that is taken out of context, first thing we have to do is look and see, okay, is there an example of a communal-type environment with the Christians anywhere else in Scripture? And there's not. Because this was not a permanent practice, but it was a temporary measure. The principles of love and, and helping fellow Christians in need was established at this point, but there's no other indication anywhere else in the New Testament that this was a norm. This was a special occurrence to provide for a special need during that time, and part of that need was all of the people that were there visiting from these other countries. But that's the problem when people go to one passage of Scripture and try to pull out of it and apply all these other concepts is they're not looking and seeing what the rest of Scripture teaches or says about that one portion of of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And even focusing on this, Obviously, at some point, it had grown so large that the distribution itself was not being conducted in an equal measure because the Hellenists complained that we're not getting our fair share. 
that these people over here, you know, they're they're not getting their equal portion. That's what led the apostles to appoint the seven to take care of basically redistributing what was being brought in and making sure that everyone got their basically fair share of what was happening. And that's what rose, you know, Stephen arose from that. And we know how that ended, but, you know, um, far as a, a principle of socialism, no, but it is a great example of Christians loving and caring for one another. But in, in the, in the aspects of socialism, we also have to remember what's stated throughout the rest of Scripture. Christians are to take care of Christians first, and even then it's very specific needs that should be met. Widows, true widows and orphans, they come first. If a person's family can provide for them, that person's family is the one responsible to mm-hmm. seeing that, that their family members' needs are being met, whether it's food or clothing or housing. Um, and, and that's aspects that are often forgotten even today. You know, we we see different organizations wanting to feed the poor and the hungry, and that's wonderful. Yes, we should be doing that. But unless I'm mistaken, the Bible makes it clear that our first thought and first responsibility should be for fellow believers first and then the rest of the world. Now, granted, you know, feeding the poor and the hungry are examples of Christian love, but that also is to be done with while sharing the gospel. Because if mm-hmm. you feed the poor and the hungry without sharing the gospel, you know, they may be well fed and sleep good for that night, but they're still facing an eternal damnation. And, you know, that that's an aspect of this that's never mentioned is that as Christians, we're to provide for fellow Christians first, prior to the rest of the world. And I just notice and think that that's something that is often overlooked when it comes to some of these issues. But, you know, we could get into the interpreting Scripture, but sadly, more times than not, people try to make a universal command from something that was practiced during a specific period, and we see that, you know, with the charismatic chaos, with people teaching others how to speak in tongues and misapplying what that actually truly means in a biblical sense. But no, and under, under no circumstance can we conclude that anywhere in the book of Acts that it actually teaches socialism, because like you said, first and foremost, socialism is a government run and controlled system, whereas what's going on in Acts was a special mm-hmm. situation during a, a specific time. And, and, you know, the fact that they had to appoint men to oversee that, you know, showed that it was getting out of hand and out of control. And, and even then it had to be oversaw and regulated by someone that was trustworthy. And that was the thing was the qualifications for the seven that were appointed to oversee this. Mm -hmm. They had very specific qualifications that they had to meet in order to be in charge of the distributing of of the food and 
everything else that was be, been going on. So, you know, and as you said, pro- private property rights, they were still upheld not only during this point, but throughout all the rest of the New Testament. There's no command given in the Bible that you should sell everything that you absolutely own and give it away. Now, it does state that those with extra are to help those with nothing so that, you know, in time that when someone else has plenty and you're in need, they can help you. You know, that that is about as close as we can come, but it still does not denounce private property ownership. It does mm-hmm. not say thou shalt not own property. Thou shalt, you know, live as a homeless poor person. There's nothing in there. In fact, you know, those of us that happen to be blessed, if, if we can help somebody in need, first and foremost, we should be looking to help a brother or sister in need before we go looking to help the world that is in need. Mm-hmm. And I know that may rub some people raw, but, you know, that is basically what the Bible teaches when it comes to giving and sharing and, and helping. But in all of this, the... the there's clear teaching that entails government ownership of the means of production, coercive taxation, and wealth redistribution, or socialism. That's never pointed to. That's never shown anywhere else in Scripture. And I'll let you get the last word in, but I found a very interesting note. It says, wise teachers have maintained that it is not good to base an important doctrine on a single passage of Scripture. But if you do so, surely in that passage, the doctrine should be taught. Not only is socialism not taught in Acts 2 through 5, it is impossible without meeting the above conditions to show that it does, meaning that in order to prove that Acts teaches socialism, you would have to find other scriptures, other examples in scripture that point to and say that this is the model that we should be adhering to. The model is out of love and out of fellowship and out of caring for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're able, we should be able to help them because Paul states the Lord loves a generous giver, meaning we should not feel coerced. We should not feel like it's mandated, but because of the generosity that the Lord has blessed us with and the means that the Lord has blessed us with, we give. And even then we give generously because out of love and out of wanting to help. See, socialism demands it. Christianity compels you out of love. And that's the huge difference between being told you have to do this and being said that, thank you, you did this out of love. That's two different, completely opposite agendas. Absolutely. And since we're stepping on some toes, let, let, let me throw one final thing. I know we were, we're going a little long here, but bear with us. Um, one of the tenets of these kinds of economic political systems is that there's an unfair distribution of wealth. Oftentimes what you hear is, well, the, you know, the rich people are hoarding wealth, as if wealth is this finite thing. Is, is, I think it was James White... I'm not trying to score points, I swear. I just happened to hear this today. Uh, <laughs> like there's a f- 
one no 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 wasn't James White. This was Rush Limbaugh. So my apologies, James. Um, there's like this finite pie, and everybody has to have a a, a an equal slice. Um, so there's this in the mind of the socialist. This has to be fairly sliced up. And so you have people who are poor, and the assumption is they're poor because evil rich people are keeping the money away from them. And so there's it is the government, the benevolent government, that has to come in and, and equalize the scales. The problem is, is that it assumes, kind of like critical race theory, assumes that if you're an oppressed class, everything that happens to you and uh, through you, everything you do and say is a direct result of your oppression. So it's things are never the oppressed person's fault. Well, the poor, it's kind of the same way with the poor. And the socialist says, well, the poor person's poor, not because of their own choices, not because of an unwillingness to work or anything. It, the person is poor because they're per, this other person's rich. And so I want to, I want to really just kind of step on some toes here. The Bible is going to bust your bubble big right now. The Bible teaches you that even the poor must work. That the poor have an obligation to care for themselves. God's very interested, as Rich pointed out, <laughs> that, uh, in the church providing for those who are in legitimate need. Okay, People who legitimately need help, the church is there to help. That's why you had people of their... Uh, own free will, selling their property in acts and giving to the church so the church could distribute to those in legitimate need. But and, and even when you look at the book of James, for example, Rich, when he's trying to explain that faith without works is dead, he uses a really clear example. He says, if you were to tell someone, uh, I'll quote James uh, 2, 14 through 17, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has, says he has faith but doesn't have works, can, faith, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a clear understanding for the Christian. If you saw someone in legitimate need and you could provide for that need, you're you're, you're to do that. That's what the church does. So it is, it, it's a clear example that the church would have understood. And we provide for those in the household of faith, as you said. Here's the thing. When, when confronted with the alabaster box being broken and the, oil, the, the expensive oil being poured over his head and Judas objecting, because this is, this is you know, being, you know, being greedy, he just wanted the money for himself. He said this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Mark 14, 7, Jesus says, For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Christ himself points out that there will always be throughout history the poor. There will never be a time when the poor are not poor. There's always going to be that. So the idea that socialism can solve that first off, unbiblical. Christ himself de declared that this would always be the case. It's not to say that it's great for people to be poor. It's not that we don't care that people are poor. It's that the recognition biblically is that there will always be, until the end of days, poor. It's always going to happen. So socialism can't solve that problem, no matter how hard you try. First thing. Second thing, 
when God talked about providing from the poor, starting from even in the Old Testament, there was an expectation that the poor would work to provide for themselves. So when, for example, providing for those who did not have the means to reap and sow and gather for themselves and when harvesting was going on the Jews were not were directed by God not even to collect ever every last uh, scrap of grain he says in Leviticus 23:22 and when you reap the harvest of your land you shall not reap your field right up to its edge nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest you shall leave the, uh, them for the poor and the sojourner i am your lord i am the lord your god make make an uh, an observation here the gleanings were left where, in the field. They were you weren't to you weren't to harvest right up to the edge, wiping out every last scrap. You left it in the field. It's for the poor and the sojourner. What does that mean? The poor and the sojourner have to go and get it. They have to harvest it, harvest it themselves. They have to collect it for themselves. They have to bring it home. This was not a government come along here. We're going to take this portion of your uh, your your. Uh, harvest and we're going to go distribute it the poor person had to work he had to collect it for himself yes the you know the people of israel had to leave behind gleanings they had to sacrifice out of their abundance to provide for others but they had to come get it they had to work in the field and collect the gleanings the whole book of ruth is that when she's going out to the field and boaz is like hey leave here, knock some off the, tr uh, you know, the 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 the, uh, the back of the the cart here. Oh, here's here we'll bundle some up for you. What was she out there doing? She was doing that. She was working all day in the field, collecting up the gleanings. That's what the poor were to do. So that there was no command to say give up some of your property to the others. It was to say leave behind all the you know the you know the remaining portions, and and those who can come and get it would collect it. The poor were to work, but they weren't to just come and take, you know, and and uh, you know, have provided for them whatever they asked for. There was a there was a distinct, you know, uh, there was a command of God that this is how you provided, but the person who needed had to come in and work to get it. There's another thing that I want to kind of step on some toes here. There's a distinction between those who were genuinely poor and who had nothing for which they could provide themselves and those who could be cared for or could care for themselves. So talking about um, those who would not work, for example, you know, there was in, in 2 Thessalonians talking about Christ's soon return. Paul writes about if a man wouldn't work, he can't eat, right? He says... 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you have received from us. For you yourselves uh, know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But we with toil and labor worked, we worked day and night and day, that we were not to be a burden to any of you. It was not because we, uh, that we do not have that right, but we but to give you in our, uh, give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even we were, when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So there's this understanding that there were people who were moochers. 
okay, for whatever reason. You know, and, and I've heard some people say, well, this was because they were, they thought Jesus was coming back at any minute and they didn't think they needed to work. But what were they doing? They weren't providing for themselves. They didn't have anything because they weren't working. Paul said, hey, as apostles, as preachers of the gospel, we could have availed of ourselves of the right to have you provide for us. We didn't. Why? So that we would show you by example that you were to provide for yourself. We didn't accept bread without paying for it. We didn't walk around being idle. We worked. We toiled so that you would see that we, you know, that you are to work and to earn a living. So, this is one of those shots across the bow of the socialist who says, well, the, the poor person is always poor because of the rich person. There are people who are poor and can't provide for themselves because they are just too lazy to work. I told you I was going to step on your foot. Um, we have to recognize that. a person People can be poor because they choose not to work. People can be poor because they're too lazy or too idle and they would rather have somebody else do it for them. The church has to recognize that. That is, not a, that is an anti-socialist concept. That there are people who are poor and are not providing for themselves because they are too lazy or too idle to do so. Okay, that, we have to recognize that. It is completely contradictory to Scripture to say that the poor person is always poor because of the rich. That's just simply not the case. Um, for those who claim to be in need, the church is not to enable laziness and sloth by giving it to them. He, he says, don't eat them. If they don't want to work, fine. Don't, just don't let them eat. They'll, they'll find a job real fast. People are expected to work in whatever capacity they can, and there's no command for the church to provide for someone who's lazy. Now, I want to take another step on this one. Widows. people. Now, these are people in that day and time that a widow... You know, you didn't have the, the same status in society as a man. You needed a family to provide for you. But Paul makes certain distinctions, even with regard to widows. Young, if you were a young widow, you were to remarry if you were able. If you weren't remarrying and you were staying, you know, running around town and doing nothing, you could end up being a busybody and end up causing problems in the community. Older widows who weren't able to remarry, you you were to be cared for by your family first if you if they had family. So the church wasn't to provide for the poor young widow who could remarry. And if an older widow had family to care for her, then they should have been cared for by the family. That's not a socialistic concept. That's, that's anti-socialist mindset. 1 Timothy 5, 14-16. So I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households, and give, at, give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The widow who had no family, the widow who could not remarry, that was the church's concern. And it was the church's concern, not the state's. And those who could remarry or had someone who could care for them, that was to be dealt with there. Again, socialism says, well, what about the poor widow? This rich man's got plenty of money. The widow should be provided for. God says there's ways to deal with that that don't require uh, going in a contradiction to his scriptures. So the idea that the existence of the poor is something that ought never happen and that Christians have to be dedicated to eradicating poverty, that's not consistent with biblical teaching. The poor will always exist. I'm not saying that's good. 
Okay, there, and, and I'm not saying that the church and Christians shouldn't care for the poor. It's just the fact that we're never going to eradicate that. It's going to exist. That's what Christ himself said. The poor will be provided for as the church had the ability. There were provisions for meeting the needs of the poor that were specifically for the people of God. And it was not some sort of national tax or government-run program. The poor have to be legitimately poor, like biblically uh, under biblical understanding of poor, not those who are refusing to work or those who uh, whose families were too uh, were being too lazy to care for them. When we care for the poor as the church, we're glorifying God and we're caring for those made in His image, and that's something the church should do, and the church has always done. This is why we have hospitals in maiden church names. This is why we have adoption agencies in churches names. That's why we have, you know, uh, you know, uh, food pantries in churches names. All of these things the church does because we're seeking to glorify God by caring for those whom He has, whom he has made. Excuse me. There's no teaching that in which we are to elevate the poor out of poverty and lower the rich. And put everybody equal. There's just nothing in scripture that teaches us that. The rich man can be rich. The rich man is in danger because he may make his riches his idol and may not trust in God. But there is no command that being rich is in and of itself sinful. But it is fraught with idols. Yet we are not to give preference to either the rich or the poor in our judgments. There, we're, you know, we are to trust in God in all things. But there's no command that Scripture says, bring this guy down, bring this group of people up. So the simple truth of the matter is, the Bible is not a socialistic book. You can only get to socialism with Scripture if you import it first. You have to take a godless ideology and bring it into Scripture and then take Scripture to reinterpret it to fit socialism. The Bible does not teach socialism, pure and simple. And there is actually more in common with the free market society and, and Marxism because of what God allows us to do with that which he has given us than it ever has had with socialism. Rich, any final thoughts? Well, while you were <clears throat> pointing out those passages of Scripture that people like to ignore about the church and giving, um, you backtrack and look and go to Proverbs, it speaks quite often about how lazy people are to be viewed and how they are to be treated. And um, sadly, when it comes to socialism, all of that's thrown out the window. Basically, if you don't want to work, you shouldn't have to work. Well, no, that's not what the Bible teaches, as you clearly mm -hmm. pointed out reading those passages. And, you know, it makes it clear that God shows no partiality. You know, he, he, he judges the rich and the poor alike. You know, either you are saved in Christ or you're not. Um, and I know we've run way over, but <laughs> there's a few little notes I had left I'd like to point out that, you know, since the basis of this show was that people try to use the book of Acts as an example of socialism, I found a really good write-up, and I apologize, I don't have the link or the author listed, but it says, in order to show that Acts 2, two through 5 teaches socialism, 
you would have to show that Acts 2 through 5 also teaches that all believers in Jerusalem sold all their possessions and put them in a communal pot, which was then controlled by the state, the distinctive mark of socialism. Well, that didn't happen, so that one's out. Um, private property rights upheld through the rest of Scripture were abolished by this passage. No, we don't see that. Um, scripture never abolishes the owning of private property nowhere else in the rest of Scripture. Um, the voluntary giving demonstrated by individuals in this passage gives the state the right to coerce people to give up their property, which is socialism. No, the Nowhere else in the Bible does it state or demonstrate that you have to do that through coercion. Um, the pattern shown here was not temporary but permanent. It was the rule in the rest of the New Testament. No, that's not nowhere even close that does not establish that. So there's another one that the Christian socialists are going to have to contend with, the fact that nowhere else in Scripture was this temporary time and, and situation was permanent. So they've lost out on that one. Um, that you can get alt out of is is the imperative from the indicative, a necessary mandate from a historical example, meaning that this historical example in Acts is a mandate throughout the rest of Scripture. No, it doesn't meet that. Um, there is a clear teaching that entails government ownership of the means of production, coercive taxation, and wealth redistribution is in the rest of Scripture. No, we don't see that anywhere else either. So um, in order to prove that Acts teaches socialism, the one that advocates that would have to be able to prove that one or some of these examples are actually in Scripture, and we both know none of those examples actually are in the rest of Scripture. And, you know, uh, the theme of socialism, you know, Paul counteracts that in that one verse. If a man will not eat, he, I mean, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. And sadly, in today's world, in America... That applies greatly because that scripture verse is basically has been reversed because you know we there's thousands upon thousands of people that are able to work but just don't because they'd rather sit back and have somebody give it to them mm -hmm. and sadly, I think this entitlement generation that has been created through all of these man made concepts and methodologies about, you know, don't let little Johnny get his feelings hurt. Everyone gets a trophy. All of that has contributed to the mindset of this younger generation is that they think they should be able to just sit back and have everything handed to them that they shouldn't have to work for anything whatsoever. Because in my experience, dealing with some young people, you know, work is almost, uh, profanity you know I, I don't want to get out here and do this or that that's why they're the job openings now and the jobs for the next decade i was reading the research not long ago the the main jobs that are going to be needed are skilled jobs meaning electricians plumbing plumbers you know heavy equipment operators 
you know, things that's going to require you to actually work hard, get dirty, greasy, nasty, sweaty, that don't involve being able to sit back in a comfortable chair on a computer screen or a TV screen, you know, in the comfort of air conditioning or the comfort of, of a heater, you know, depending on where you happen to live. But sadly, that's where socialism greatly differs from what the Bible teaches. You know, if you have the ability to work and be able to earn money to feed yourself, you are to do that. It doesn't matter, you know, if you think that job is beneath you or demeaning, you know, if the only job that you're qualified for or can do is to dig a ditch or clean a commode, then you should take that job and be doing it and providing for yourself the best that you can. And nowhere ever in the Bible does it say that everyone should have the same education, that everyone should have the same quote-unquote opportunities. You know, according to a lot and even that book that you read, you know, everyone should be able to go to college graduate and everyone should have high paying jobs or either to the worst extent, everyone should just be given money by the government and everyone be equal. That never works. It never will work. And it certainly does not apply in a biblical perspective. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely, brother. And that's hopefully, you know, and like I said, I'm sure we stepped on a few toes, Hopefully we're, we're pointing out to folks, there's a reason to not fear um, what the, uh, the Christian socialist, and I, I would say that that's a contradiction in terms, who comes and says, oh, this, you know, socialism is taught, taught in the Bible. Hopefully what we've been able to do is show you, you don't have to be afraid of that. Context and the and the entirety of Scripture will demonstrate clearly that's not the case. And just because the church has a command for to care for those in need who are in legitimate need, those who are unable to provide for themselves, those who do not have others to provide help provide for them, the church is there, and it's the church. Not the government. It's the people who have the ability, as God has provided them, to provide so that one day those whom they provided for can help someone else. But it's never in Scripture that, well, there's just too many rich people and too many poor people, so we're going to take from the rich, give to the poor, because you know what? That's the Robin Hood way. That's not what the Scripture teaches. And for someone who comes to you to say that says that, they are either ignorant, they are deluded, or they're lying. You know, and I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. I believe, like you believe, Rich, there are people who believe this, really think it's true, but I think there is a delusion there. There is a lack of biblical understanding. And they need to get their Bibles out, and they need to study it, and they need to pay attention to the everything it says from Genesis to Revelation, so they rightly apply the word of truth. But you are adopting a godless ideology into Scripture, 
if you try to insist that that descriptive passage in the book of Acts says that the you know is a teaching that means everybody needs to be uh, want socialism that is that is a absolutely horrifying misuse of scripture and so that's why we wanted to cover it because it happens so much and it's not that we're the first guys to ever talk about it there's tons of articles tons of sermons on this go out and find them don't just take it because rich and i said it go to your pastor unless your pastor's teaching this then you might want to talk about finding another pastor um, but go to the, you know go to the local church go to the bible go to good sermons go to you know the good theology books that explain what these things are but don't be intimidated by the guy on twitter who says that's socialism it's you know you can't be hating socialism yeah i can because it's a godless ideology that breaks the commandments of god and encourages theft encourages covetousness and encourages laziness and sloth so you're absolutely darn tootin that i can hate socialism and i can do so biblically so thank you for being really patient with us this was almost a two-hour program um but i think it was worth it rich I, I think it was worth talking about especially when we're talking about the election coming up on november 3rd and I'm pretty sure that 99.9% .9 of people who are voting have already settled on who they're voting for, but it brings up these conversations and whatever happens on November 3rd. Well, a lot of us, well, if you're allowed, unlike California, but if you're allowed, you know, there's going to be Thanksgiving day, uh, day conversations with family and friends. And these conversations are going to come up and we have answers, Christians. The Bible has answers, and we can confront that, and we can teach what the Bible actually says. And then we can transition to the one gospel, more. and you need to be doing that. So, any last things, Rich? Just one more thing. Um, yes, it is good to help the poor and the needy, but if you are a Christian as an individual doing it, or as a church, or a food pantry, or as a um, mission, or whatever, if you are providing food, clothing, housing to those in need and not sharing the gospel with them while doing so, you are doing nothing but keeping them warm, fed, and cozy while they're still on a path to hell. Now, I know of many ministries that give to the poor and go out to the, on the streets in some of these large cities where there's a huge homeless population and each bag that they give them, they provide a gospel track. It's that simple. It's that easy to do, but you know, good, those works are good. And we glorify Christ by helping those in need, but we glorify him even further by sharing his gospel while doing these things because that is the only thing that will truly matter in the realm of eternity is whether or not that hungry and starving person is actually saved or not. Yeah. So please remember that if you are so inclined and you're in the position to help others, just please remember, share the gospel while doing that. And that that's just kind of my final take. And I, I know that some people will take exception to that because there are two or three really large ministries that help 
during times of crisis and reach out to the homeless and the hungry and, and the poor folks around the world. But sadly, more times than not, they're doing it without sharing the gospel. Yeah. And that is a sad, sad thing to see. And I know Michelle refers back to my irritation at Christian websites not having a gospel presentation <laughs> on them. But that is the light that we are to share with the world is the gospel. So if you are in a position that you're in a ministry or a church or whatever, and you are reaching out and helping those in your community in need, do it while sharing the gospel, because that will make a bigger impact in eternity than them being fed and clothed for the day. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for enduring the, the extra long episode. Um, I don't know what to call these because everybody's claimed all the cool names. I think I think we settled on like Uber, Uber uh, episode, Uber sized, I think is what we called it one time. So maybe we'll, we'll run with that. But thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you for listening through as we slog through a lot of that. And as um, we always ask, if you find that this program is helpful, consider sharing it. Not not because we want numbers, but because we, we like to be able to communicate to as many people as we can because we hope what we're doing is, you know, doing the work of God by communicating his truths. And hopefully this will spark conversations with other Christians and help them think through these issues biblically. That's always our goal. So if, if you find this useful, please consider sharing it. Likewise, don't forget, you can always get in touch with us at voiceofreasonradio at gmail.com. Whether you agree or disagree, hey, just find, bring your scripture, bring it in context, and whatever you do, don't be snarky or trollish. If you do the snark troller or if you do foul language, you definitely go in the circle uh, circle bin. That's called the trash ba- uh, basket, and, and we're not going to deal with that. Uh, we do know that some of you communicate back to us. And we want to thank you for that. Uh, we know one particular sister who's going through a tough time right now. Uh, Debbie Lynn, we love you very much. And we're grateful that you uh, that you listen to the program and uh, know that we love you. We're praying for you. And uh, we pray, and we, uh, we're grateful that you uh, make us part of your life. And, and we are so grateful for what you do. So continue to do that. Um, it, again, as Rich said, website slavetothekeen.com. That's where all the shows are. That's where more blog articles as I continue to try to put more writing and content up there. You'll find that. Rich and I will continue to put more up up there. going to try to refine the website because it keeps telling me oh, there's all things that I should plug in that I should do or improve this or make that secure. I'm not very smart, so i got to figure those things out. We're going to try and make those things better. Uh, if you ever have a problem with the website, please let us know. Um, it also has the links to the RSS feeds, uh, Apple Podcasts, and all the other places that we we can be listened to on, and uh, we appreciate it. And hey, if you think about it and it's it's worth your time, consider dropping a review. Um, we we almost never see them because it's not like I get an alert, but reviews help other people, as I've said before. Um, if you ever want to have a fun time, go on to some of the reviews on Amazon, like Giant Beach Balls or Banana Slicers. Reviews can be very entertaining, but <laughs> reviews can also be very helpful to people uh, who listen be, if they're looking for something. I like to go to reviews because I, I, you know, look, if I see a review that's, that's a one star and it says, these guys believe nothing but the Bible, they have no, you know, they have nothing else, I know that's going to be a great program. So, uh, 
<laughs> so it's worth listening to. But reviews do help, and it, it doesn't bump us up in the feeds or anything like that. It doesn't stroke our egos or anything. It just lets other people know that there are folks listening to this, and they find good or bad in the program. So whatever you feel about it, feel free to write. Um, so those are things that we just ask you to consider. And above all, please pray for us. Um, as opportunities become available to do more things, we're going to try and avail ourselves of that. Right now, we're just going to keep doing what God gives us to put in front of us to do. So thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us. Whatever you do this week, do it for the glory of God. Thank you. Good night. We'll see you next week.